Empress Agnes stood on the jetty of the small island of Südbertuswert in the Rhinov of Neuss. Here she wanted to hold a banquet shortly after the Easter feast of the year 1062 and already received a number of guests throughout the day. The Archbishop of Cologne had also just arrived. And not just like that. With a magnificent ship under the second Archbishop of Cologne for almost six years now, had arrived here. Even for an empress who was used to a lot, Agnes was surprised at the splendor in the form of the ship, which was now anchored at the jetty in front of the island. With difficulty, Agnes had been able to convince her 11-year-old son, King Henry IV, to finally take his eyes off the archbishop's magnificent ship and to devote himself to his royal duties instead, like going to the palace located here to entertain the guests from Cologne, Brunswick, Mainz, Bremen and Bavaria. Gently, Agnes put her hand on her boy's shoulder. His father and Agnes's husband, Emperor Henry III, had died far too early six years ago. Since then, she, Agnes, was the regent of the empire and led the official business for the young King Henry IV, just as Theothen had done some eight years before with Otto III. However, many in the empire were vocal critics of her regency. Quite a few princes in the empire were of the opinion that she, Agnes, was coddling and spoiling the young king. The boy would need a strict hand, especially a male hand, and not that of a woman. But all that mattered little to Empress Agnes at that moment. What Agnes did not know at that moment, for the time being, it would be the last day she would see her son for the next three years. And with that, welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne today's Western Germany that's already over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. It can therefore be seen as quite a microcosm of European history. In this podcast, you can listen as the city grows, from the Romans up until our time. This time, we start into a particularly intense era of our city. Cologne under the rule of Archbishop Anno II. In his almost 20 years as a city ruler in the middle of the 11th century, so much was to happen in the city that this will take us several episodes. Above all, Anno himself has a considerable share in it. So in order to dive well into this series of topics, let's take a look at Anno's biography and why he is known far beyond the borders of Cologne and ended up in the history books. Off to the intro. Before we start, I have to do some housekeeping. Man, I really made, I think, three big errors in the last episode. The first one was that, again, I said something about the year 1000-something-something, and I said 2000-something-something. That is, of course, not true. We're in the 11th century, not in the 21st century. Another thing was that I called Matilde, the wife of Etzo, the granddaughter of Theophano. That's not right. She was the daughter of Theophano. And 
I think there was some editing mistake again where I just repeated a sentence again after I already said it. Sorry for that. It happens when you're the only one listening to this episode before it comes out. I would like to finish the little story from the intro here because it is ideal to get you in the mood for the following episodes what kind of character this infamous Archbishop Anno II was. Archbishop Anno was one of the most colorful and also most controversial Archbishops of Cologne still until this day, but nevertheless is still considered as a saint to this day. We are still in the year 1062, close after Easter in April, in what is now the Düsseldorf district of Kaiserswerth. At that time, however, the place was still called Suitbertuswerth and was still an island of the banks of the Rhine, complete with a palace complex in the middle of it. Exactly here, Empress Agnes and her minor son, King Henry IV, had invited some magnates of the empire for a feast after Easter. Among them were the Saxon Count Eckbert von Meissen, the Duke of Bavaria named Otto von Nordheim, and the Archbishops of Bremen, Mainz and Cologne named Adalbert, Siegfried and just that, Anno. Throughout the feast, the 11-year-old Henry whined incessantly besides his imperial mother. Mommy, I want to find a look at that beautiful ship in which Archbishop Anno came here. That can be arranged with pleasure, your majesty, replied the Archbishop of Cologne at the table, here in our imaginary enactment promptly. I would be honored if I could show you the ship in person. No sooner said than done, hastily the little king ate his meal. Then everyone went out of the palace to look at the ship. What happened next went down in history. Because... But wait, 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 wait. What followed is well documented historically. Let's listen to a contemporary source of that time. The annals or yearbooks which Lampert of Hersfeld, contemporary witness, historian and abbot of the monastery of Hasungen near Kassel in Hesse wrote. He wrote them down about 15 years after these events, so around the year 1078. He wrote about Anno and the incident itself, quote, He easily persuaded the impartial boy who suspected nothing less than deceit to do so. But when he had boarded the ship and was surrounded by those whom the bishop had appointed as comrades and helpers for his plot, the skippers quickly rose, rowed with strange strength, and immediately drove the ship into the middle of the stream. The king, upset by this new appearance, in uncertainty and not thinking otherwise than that his violent death was intended, suddenly threw himself into the river and the stronger current would have swallowed him quickly if Count Eckbert, jumping after him, had not snatched the endangered man with no less danger from the sinking and brought him back into the ship with great difficulty. Hereupon they seek to appease him by all possible words of flattery and led him to Cologne. End quote. So to summarize, if you did not understand, because that's a long Latin sentence that you always have to translate, the Archbishop of Cologne and his powerful co-conspirators had in fact just kidnapped the king and future Emperor Henry IV before the eyes of his mother at 
close after Easter, the highest feast of Christianity. Anno and his allies had not only broken the hospitality law because it's not nice to abduct your host, it was a true outrage. And in terms of politics, they had shown the entire empire the powerlessness of the Empress Agnes and thus also of the king himself. An anointed king, child or not, had been kidnapped by his vassals. This had never happened before. That was, as said, a downright sacrilege. Surely Anno and his allies would be sacked and persecuted. But what happened? Nothing. For Anno had carefully planned the so-called coup d'etat of Kaiserswert. Kaiserswert? Wasn't the island called Südbertuswert? Correct, because Plectrude, I hope you still remember her, had once given this Rhine island to the Anglo-Saxon monks around the year 700. The first abbot of the newly built monastery here was an Anglo-Saxon missionary named Suidbert. Those who live in the Rhineland know that many islands in the Rhine end with the suffix wert. This is Middle High German and simply means island. So Suidbertus wert means island of Suidbert. Over the time, the island became Kaiserswert, probably because of the imperial palace that was then built here in the meantime and maybe because of the spectacular abduction of Henry IV as well. So Kaiserswert means the Emperor's Island. If we take a closer look at how Archbishop Anna proceeded with this kidnapping, it quickly becomes clear that he did not just came up with the idea one minute before that. No, the Archbishop of Cologne had planned everything perfectly before. But who was this Anno actually that he dared to kidnap the emperor, the future emperor? Let us therefore take a look at the remarkable life of Anno. The empire, which we call the Holy Roman Empire today, but at that time was just the empire, virtually covers the center of Europe in the 11th century. Besides today's Germany, large parts of Belgium, France, Netherlands, all of Luxembourg, Burgundy, northern Italy, Austria and Bohemia belong to this empire. I will post the map on the homepage thehistoryofcologne.com if you want to look at it. But maps can be deceiving. A medieval empire is much more than just a landmass drawn onto a map with demarcated borders. Enormous upheavals are taking place. The population of Europe is literally exploding after centuries of population collapses and stagnation, almost since late antiquity. Now, however, in the 11th century, the population is growing rapidly. This is due to better farming methods and the warmer climate. Many previously small villages grow into cities. The power of the church grows through further centralization towards Rome. Soon the emperor or the king of the empire will no longer be able to continue to treat the pope as a simple puppet as in earlier times since Charles the Great. The just here freshly kidnapped king and later emperor Henry IV should experience this very particular in the course of his life. but. This is not our topic here. Within the church, however, there's also rumblings. 
Many monasteries live a life of luxury and wealth due to the many donations they received and the tithe tax they are additionally allowed to collect from the local people makes, makes the clergy even richer. And people start to complain about that. Priests, including nuns and monks, often, not all of them, but often have wives and children. Offices such as that of abbot or bishop are sometimes sold to the highest bidding nobleman. And they don't even try to hide it. They even admit that. They stand there with a bag of money in their hand and say, hey, I want that. Here, I give you the money. All these practices, however, are coming under increasing criticism. Religious reform movements within Christianity are increasingly emerging. First, of course, among the monks and the nuns in the monasteries. Bishops in this period are not only spiritual dignitaries, you know that already, but also serve as the highest officials of the emperor and significantly direct the affairs of the empire. Anno grows up during this time. The later Archbishop of Cologne. He was born around the year 1010 in Altstoislingen. Where is that supposed to be? I had to look it up too. Altstoislingen is a village west of Ulm. It has even today only about 400 inhabitants. And in the 11th century, the village should certainly not have had more inhabitants than today. Anno's family was descended from the lower nobility and early on they intended for Anno to take the step into a clerical career. It is true that Anno came from the noble class, but not from the high nobility. As I said, he came only from the village of Altstoislingen and had not a big lineage to the royal family as the Etzonids, the Etonians, the Carolingians or the Salians had. But even in those times where heritage often defined where you could go in life, Anno must have been somehow convincing or must have been diligent, or also both. Anno was educated as a clergyman in the cathedral school in Bamberg, a true elite training center for bishops at that time. Apparently his performance there was so outstanding that he not only became a member of the Bamberg Cathedral chapter, but also directly took over the leadership of the renowned Bamberg Cathedral School that he just graduated from. In this way, the then Emperor Henry III became aware of the high flyer from Swabia. In 1046, when Anno was around his mid-thirties, the Emperor summoned him to his court where he served as court chaplain. For ten years Anno II worked for his Emperor at court and in the meantime had already received the office of provost in a monastery in Goslar, which Henry III had founded. In 1056, as you already know from the last episode, the previous Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann, who came from the powerful family of the Itzonids, died. This family ruled over large parts of the Rhineland, as you learned in the last episode, and until then, through Hermann's episcopate, they also had the control over the city of Cologne itself as well. Who should become the new Archbishop of Cologne was, of course, that time still in the hands of Emperor Henry III. Several candidates therefore applied for the job. It was a powerful position after all. But Henry had then surprised everyone with his choice. 
The emperor announced that he had chosen the non, non-high noble Anno as the new archbishop of Cologne. The Itzonids were outraged. And why not? They were a highly noble family with ties to the previous Ottonian imperial dynasty that had ruled the empire until recently. And now, right after one of their own in their eyes, a foreign bumpkin from faraway southern Germany followed in the chair of the Archbishop in Cologne? But not only that, the people of Cologne itself also seemed stunned. Until now, they had been used to their city leader being of noble and high aristocratic descent, like Hermann, Heribert, or even a Bruno who was even the brother of the emperor. Are we being made fun of? Must have been a common saying in the city at that time. Anno would always, in his almost 20 years of city rule, not always have the full love of his fellow residents, to say the least, and not putting spoilers ahead. But the emperor had now so decided. Anno was installed as Archbishop of Cologne in 1056, and at the same time, was also appointed as Imperial Chancellor of Italy, as was the custom by now for every Archbishop of Cologne. Anno was thus suddenly one of the most powerful men in the empire. In the last episode, we had talked about the powerful family of the Itzonids. When Anno became Archbishop of Cologne in 1056, almost all of Etzo's and Matilda's children had already died. The death of their son Hermann himself had ensured that Anno could become the new Archbishop of Cologne. Queen Richetza and Abbess Ida, we talked about in the last episode, were still alive at that time, but they were already old by the standards of time. Now it was the turn of the grandsons to inherit from Azzo and Matilde, who built up the Zonid dynasty. The leader of the Zonids in the Rhineland was now a man named Henry. Yes, I know, too many people in this episode with the same name, Henry. This Henry I'm talking about now, for quite some time, is the Henry of the Zonids, not Emperor Henry III or Henry IV, which we had already discussed here. No, we are not talking about them right now. We are talking about the Zonids, Henry. This Etzonid Henry became the greatest rival in the early days of Anno's tenure as Archbishop of Cologne. And Anno, in turn, also left no doubt that he wanted to break the perceived Etzonian ring around Cologne because the Etzonids had possessions everywhere around Cologne and really encircled it in some kind of way. At first there was some calm at two meetings of local nobles in Andernach, uh, place located 90 kilometers south of Cologne, nothing is known in the sources of disputes between Anno and the Itzonids. But in the year 1060, events suddenly overturned, so when four years after Anno took office. What was the reason for the disputes? Actually, we don't really know. One assumption is that Etzo Henry wanted to prevent the Archbishopric of Cologne from continuing to appropriate property that before that belonged to his family. Thus already Hermann, the Archbishop of Cologne back then, 
after all himself a child of Ezzo, had transferred the family tomb and the monastery Brauweiler into the possession of the Cologne church during his tenure. So the development that its sonnet property came into the hands of the Cologne church had already begun before Anno, but now it intensified. What really happened in this year of conflict 1060 is, you can guess, not so well known. Only one source really reports about the conflict in great detail. It is the so-called Vita Anonis Minor, a manuscript from the monastery of Siegburg which describes the life of Anno. But there's the rub. The text, the manuscript, came from the monastery foundation of Anno II. The content of this manuscript of life is therefore completely propagandistically colored and serves solely for the glory of the monastery founder, Anno II of Cologne. Anno is here the noble defender, challenged by a domineering aggressor of the Zonets. But this must surely not be the whole truth. Perhaps it had been the other way around. Perhaps Anno had been the aggressor, and the Edsonid Henry had in turn only defended himself. Who knows? Despite the propaganda, however, there's truth in the text in many places, which would take far too much time to cite. The dissertation on which this podcast episode, by the way, is largely based, and which I also will duly mention at the end, has tried to break down the whole thing of this Vita Anonis in combination with other historical sources, such as the already quoted yearbooks by Lampert. And it goes something like this. In 1060, as already mentioned, there is a dispute between Anno and Henry from the Itzonid dynasty. Henry sees himself in the right, Anno likewise. How do you get your right? Do you go to court and have this clarified according to the rule of law? <laughs> Nonsense. At that time, it was a chartered right for nobles to wage private wars against each other within the empire. A so-called feud to settle, yeah, to settle arguments. The right of feud is not only tolerated by the king slash emperor, but is, as I said, a vested right for the nobility in the Middle Ages. By the way, everywhere and not only in the Holy Roman Empire. From today's point of view, a really sick thing, but in the logic of that time, I guess. Can you imagine that nowadays the Cologne district mayor of Ehrenfeld is at war with the neighboring town of Frechen, west of Cologne? I cannot. And so both parties enter the field of battle. Feuds are a terrible thing. In a feud, both parties try to harm the other by ravaging their possessions and harassing their subjects in order to make the opponent give in, with terrible consequences for the population living there. The normal population, the 99% we are hardly talking about in this whole podcast all the time because we only have sources from the rich and the ruler, ruling class. Murder, robbery, rape, looting and devastation of the subjects of the enemy are expressly permitted in a feud. After all, everything is the property of the opposing party. In an open field battle, the respective leaders of a feud rarely face each other, 
really honorable guys, really. Feuds are common in Europe at this time, and I hope I pronounce this word correctly. It's really hard to pronounce as a German, or for me. The common people in particular suffer enormously, so bad that soon the church itself would step on the scene to put an end to the going-ons, at least on certain days like religious holidays. But we'll get to that another time, because Cologne also plays a role in that development. But yes, this is how a military confrontation between Anno and Henry from the family of the Itzonets began, Archbishop Rick of Cologne against the Itzonets, in the year 1060. From today's town of Siegburg, southeast of Cologne, Henry invaded Anno's territory and devastated especially the rural areas in the Rhineland. Anno, who was not only a secular ruler, but also a spiritual dignitary, made full use of his power as a prince of the church. He banished Henry and thus excluded him from the church. What sounds like a joke, hey cool, I don't have to attend service anymore, is not a joke in a thoroughly Christian world of that time. Before the summer, Henry fell into Anno's captivity. How exactly this happened, as said, is not handed down. With more than just a smile and probably not exactly squeamish, Anno asked Henry to make some amends. Hmm? And Henry had to do it in spades. Henry had to publicly fall to his feet in front of Anno in the city of Cologne and wistfully ask for forgiveness. As you know, public acts were extremely important in a world that was still largely illiterate at the time, without TV, radio and the internet, just as they are still important today in some kind of degree as when a politician takes an oath of office in front of an audience or when at a wedding you have to declare the legal act of marriage with your hands and feet as well with words and sometimes with your lips. Only when Henry lay wistfully on the ground, Anno did forgive his opponent's transgressions and lifted the ban against him. Henry was once again part of Christendom. But with a mere kneeling down, the matter was not done for Anno, of course. As so-called thank you for the release of the church ban, Henry had to hand over the Siegberg to the Archbishop of Cologne, on which Anno would later found the monastery of Siegburg, from which the present city in the Rhine-Sieg district nowadays emerged. But spoilers, that was not the end of the conflict. For the time being, Henry entered the monastery of Gortz in Lorraine. I mean, really, the today's Lorraine, not the historical bigger region of Lotharingia. Allegedly, he was plagued by mental confusion. But as soon as he arrived there, he missed his wife so ardently that Henry left the monastery pretty soon after he arrived there. This is how the second part of this dispute came about. In July 1060, still the same year when the feud started, Henry moved with his army directly in front of Cologne's city wall. But the mighty Roman stone wall that still surrounded the city, along with the entire Cologne population in arms on it, makes Henry realize that 
storming the city, let alone conquering it, is impossible. So Henry departed and led his army to the castle of Cochem, southwest of Koblenz, on the river Mosel. In the southern Rhineland, he wants to unite with the other troops of the rest of his clan to be able to return to Cologne with a greater army. As said, all this happened only in the year 1060. Then, however, something happened about which many historical sources, such as Lampert, the Vita Anonis, etc., are in agreement. While in the castle of Cochem, the Zonian army was preparing for a renewed war campaign against Cologne, Henry was again seized by the not further defined madness. Completely delirious, Henry publicly slew his wife with an axe in front of his assembled troops. The wife he had missed so much that he even broke out of a monastery in the spring. As I said, public actions were important at that time. You could have so many men under arms or so much wealth, but what Henry did in public was unforgivable. Immediately, his own followers arrested him. They put Henry in the monastery of Echternach, where he never got away from his madness, and also died after a short time in this monastery in today's Luxembourg. As dramatic as this feud ended, the more perfect is Anno's victory. Henry, branded as a madman, was the pride of his power. Henry's son was still a minor. Of course, Anno saw it as his supreme duty to take this heir into his personal care. As long as Anno lived, he could dispose of this young Edsonid heir like a father. Really practical. All this happened in the year 1060, so two years before the kidnapping of that very other, now royal, Henry IV, whom we would later know as Emperor Henry IV. But perhaps the forced taking into custody of the Etzonian heir was already a kind of blueprint for that, what Anno did in the year 1062. Anno's victory against the Etzonids broke the power of the Etzonids. Within a very short time, they completely disappeared from the northern Rhineland as a power political factor. As rapid as their rise was around the year 1000, it was already over in the third generation. This becomes clear in the year 1063 when Queen Richetza, daughter of Etzo and Queen of Poland, who is already known to us from the last episode, was not buried in Brauweiler Abbey, but in St. Maria at Grados. Despite her own instructions after her death, Richetza was buried in a church that Anno himself had endowed. In this way, Anno wanted to enforce further property claims he had made to its Sonian property. It is remarkable that Anno prevailed on her not to be laid to rest in Brauweiler, as had actually been agreed, but in one of Anno's possessions. The decline of the Zonids cannot be illustrated more clearly. Even in death, Richetza had no peace before Anno. I would like to come to the Church of St. Maria at Grados in another episode, in an upcoming episode. But this much is said. The reason Richetza is now prominently buried in Cologne Cathedral these days 
is because of these events, because when St. Maria at Gradas was demolished in the early 19th century, her bones were reburied in the directly neighboring Cologne Cathedral. I myself visited her again in the cathedral a week before this podcast episode was recorded. Of course, Anno could not control everything alone which he had received from the Itzonids and through further successful territorial policy. He skillfully bound the local nobility and his own servants to him and gave them as fiefs, localities, rights and territories. The so-called electorate of Cologne took more and more shape. The area where the Archbishop of Cologne ruled as a secular ruler and not only as a bishop. The Itzonists themselves had been eliminated as direct competitors of the Cologne Church with Anno's victory against the Etzonian Henry. Their center of power shifted further to southern Germany. When Henry's son, Henry, also died in 1085, yes, I know, a great choice of name, as always with the nobility, the Etzonian line died out here around Cologne. Finally, I would like to return to the events at the beginning of the episode. With the crushing of the power of the Itzonids in the Rhineland, Anno had had the opportunity to see the bigger picture, imperial politics. His patron and sponsor, Emperor Henry III, had died in the same year of his appointment as the new Archbishop of Cologne in 1056. From then on, Empress Agnes reigned as regent in place of her still minor son, Henry IV, and this was probably not well received, as you learned at the beginning of the episode. What exactly the motives were of the kidnappers of Henry IV, like Anno, is sometimes still debated in historical research. I think the answer becomes clear when you look at what Anno did following the king's abduction. With the young, teeny King Henry IV in his hands, Anno, along with other allied princes and bishops, was virtually the secret ruler of the empire for the next few years. He also took full advantage of this circumstance. Numerous, actually, royal possessions, as well as taxes and whole monasteries, Anno put during his reign into the possession of the Cologne Church, thus into his own possession. Anno's other allies, of course, did the same. Emperor Henry IV was later to recover, partly successfully, partly unsuccessfully, what had been stolen. Anno also made use of the right to appoint bishops, what was usually the emperor's right, but now Anno was regent, so he did it. He made his brother Werner Archbishop of Magdeburg in 1063. But I would come to Anno's family promotions to spiritual top offices in the empire another time. What actually happened to the little story between Anno and King Henry? As already mentioned, Anno cleverly used the three years to further consolidate his position in the empire. Because three years after the kidnapping, however, Anno finally lost control of the 
royal boy. Because the boy had made friends with Adalbert, the Bishop of Bremen. Furthermore, Henry was now of age in 1065, at the age of 14. At Easter of all days, almost exactly three years after his abduction, Henry was to receive his sword initiation in Worms. Yeah, I know, this is really a city on the Rhine in, in the southern Rhineland. But yes, we call it Worms. With this ceremony, the girding with a sword, it was made clear to the public that the boy had now become a man. With all rights and duties. From then on, Henry would be an adult and a king who could make his decisions without a guardian. Henry IV had certainly suffered much at the hands of Anno during the three years of his imprisonment, his involuntary superior mentor. The emotional state of Henry, and we know how teenagers are emotionally, was certainly not so positive in relation to Anno, his abductor. And so it does not surprise me personally that the young king wanted to return this as the first official act of an adult and now fully mature king. And it's handy that you get a sword in your, around, your, around your hips when you become an adult in that time. So, so without further ado, let us hear Lampert of Hersfeld again from the moment when Henry received the sword from the Archbishop of Bremen. Quote, Here by the grant of the same archbishop, the king first girded himself with weapons of war, and he immediately put on the first trial of this newly put on armor against the archbishop of Cologne, and threw himself with full impetuosity upon him to pursue him with fire and sword. If the empress had not calmed the threatening storm again by the very timely advice. End quote. What an irony! Arno was saved by the very Empress Agnes, whom he had so humiliated three years before in Kaiserswerth. And not only had Arno violated the right of hospitality, but he had also stolen her son for three years. Well, one is always wiser in hindsight, but what was Arno actually thinking? Sure, he had to be present at the ceremony as acting Archbishop of Cologne at the king's sword-laying, but did he really think that the king, now of age, would no longer be angry with his kidnapper? I mean, come on. That's it with Anno for this time. Anno the politician, the imperial prince. Anno who pushed the Zonets out of the Cologne area. All this had a great influence on how Cologne developed as a city. Because for quite some time, not for always, but for quite some time, Cologne, the city of Cologne, was without a major regional rival, at least in terms of foreign policy. And the Archbishopric of Cologne was emerging as a serious, also secular, territorial power. The site of the abduction Kaiserswerth is comparatively well preserved after almost a thousand years. The imperial palace in Kaiserswerth, now a district of the city of Düsseldorf, still stands as a castle ruin directly on the banks of the Rhine. A large part of the castle complex was destroyed in the course of the last centuries, as the people living there 
like to use the deserted castle as a quarry to build their own houses. Who could blame them? In the meantime, the complex is also no longer on an island. The Rhine had already been diverted in the 13th century. The palace complex then was severely damaged by French troops in 1702, who fired 12,000 cannon shots at it. A flood dam at the end of the 19th century was built right through the middle of the castle complex, which caused further parts to be demolished. But then, at the end of the 19th century and around 1900, people of the area started initiatives to save and preserve this complex, this castle, up until today. Nevertheless, the Imperial Palace of Kaiserswerth is still impressive today. Especially towards the Rhine, a wide facade is still preserved with stairs that also lead to the upper floors. You can take a wonderful walk there, and it is still very idyllic and rural there, despite being in the capital of the federal state of North Rhine-Westphalia. Walking through the ruins, you can almost even imagine hearing the cries of young Henry IV, a prisoner on the ship, crying for his mother that stood ashore in shock. Next time, we take a stronger look at the city of Cologne. What does every ruler love? Whether in Cologne or anywhere else? That's right, to immortalize him or herself for posterity. And how do you do that? By building something, of course. And Anno built like a madman. Of course he had the money sitting loosely now, especially as a region of the empire. We know now that he certainly let one or the other gold piece disappear into the pockets of the Cologne church, so his own pockets. I hope you enjoyed the style of this biographical episode. I think it's always important to introduce people who have had a significant influence on the city, in whatever way. And in the case of Anno, we are lucky that we have so much historical source material from him for this period. Whether this always represents the real Anno is of course another question and the very reason why historians exist. As a scientific source, I used the doctoral thesis of Georg Jena, who wrote about Anno II and his imperial politics. Although already almost 50 years old, this scientific work, with the beautiful title Archbishop Anno of Cologne and his political work, a contribution to the history of imperial and territorial politics in the 11th century, is still today extremely remarkable in its scope and details. What he has worked out, such things cannot be found on Wikipedia. Therefore, I am glad that I always read my eyes tired with beautiful old literature. The conflict I talked about here between the Etzonids and Anno alone fills over 30 pages of intensive analysis and description, and I'm very thankful for the City Library of Cologne that they still have access to this book so that I can read it and not have to buy it for like 100 euros on a catchy internet site in the internet, on the internet. Thank you very much, City Library of Cologne. The few euros I have to pay for you every year, they are totally worth it. Thank you. I would have loved to interview this professor for my podcast who wrote the 
doctoral thesis 50 years ago. Because interviews with experts have been on my bucket list for quite some time. I was very sad when I learned that Georg Jena, the author, had already passed away at the beginning of this year in 2022. Of course I can speak or rather read and write Latin. I was tortured in university with it. But I used the translation of Lampert of Hersfeld's Latin texts and I have taken over from a freely available German translation which Ludwig Friedrich Hess published in the year 1855. I must confess, however, that I have replaced some in my eyes old-fashioned words by new-fashioned ones. After all, the good Lampert has written in Latin anyway, so you can take this liberty when translating texts. I think that's all for this time. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast in the podcast player of your choice. That's the easiest and most importantly free way to support this show. Also free, but even more important, are reviews. Please consider, if you haven't already, leaving a review for this podcast, such as in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's really just a tap of your finger, and it only takes a second. A large part of my free time goes into this podcast, so I'm extremely grateful for my Patreons who throw between 1 to 5 euros in my hat per episode. Thanks to all of you, and especially to my newest Patreon called ABCD-1. Yeah, that's your name, and if that's your name, I call it out, as I promised. Thank you so much for your support. As I said, ABCD-1, it means the world to me. On my homepage, thehistoryofcologne.com, you can find a lot of background information about each episode. It's worth it. And it's also wild on social media anyway, like Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and yeah, I think that's it. Oh, Twitter maybe, but no, I, I'm not really active on Twitter. But follow me, especially on Instagram and TikTok. As I said, it's wild there. I love it. Thank you again for listening. As always, recommend me further, and until then, auf Wiedersehen. <laughs>